Welcome to The Laws of Style, featuring conversations on creativity, fashion, and the law from the leading edge of our economy and culture. Hosted by noted fashion lawyer, Douglas Hand. Hello, and welcome to the podcast, The Laws of Style, downloading to you from the offices of the law firm HBA, high above Bryant Park in the Fashion District of New York City. I'm your host, Douglas Hand, fashion lawyer, fashion law professor, and self-styled well-dressed man. And I'm joined by friend and, candidly, fashion industry titan, Fern Malice. Fern, thanks for being with us today. Good morning. Happy to be here. So, I think little-known fact, but you started, in a sense, in publishing, writing your way on to Mademoiselle during a college writing competition. Um... Tell us about that and how that informed your initial perspective on the fashion industry, because I know your family was also involved in fashion, but obviously on the editorial side, and particularly at that period of time when the relationship between publishing and fashion was so symbiotic. Well, yes, I did grow up in a fashion-centric family of sorts. My dad and uncles all worked in the garment center, so I was very familiar with the industry, all the things you learned by osmosis. Um, but I loved fashion, and in high school I was voted best dressed and things like that that, you know, keep you going. So when I was in college at the University of Buffalo, I joined what was then known as the Mademoiselle College Board. Uh, and it was a way that the magazine would reach out to its audience, um, almost creating a focus group before there were focus groups. Um, and before there were computers and things like that. Right. So this was not a reality TV show, which it sort of sounds like it would be a good one. Today, it would be a reality TV show when I tell you the outcome of what that college board becomes. Um, but the college board, they probably had several thousand students all across the country. Um, Mademoiselle was probably one of Condé Nast's most prestigious big, magazines big back then. Um some of the best people in the industry came out of Mademoiselle. Smart writing. Smart yeah. writing, smart photography, poetry, editorial, everything about it. The fashion was terrific. And it was really a cross-disciplinary magazine. And so as our college board members, we would get packages in the mail and questionnaires to fill out, sometimes some samples of product, and we'd write and send that back. If you wanted to escalate into this this comp this contest or this competition, uh, you had to then submit a project, whether it was poetry or um, graphics or photography or something in fashion, any of the disciplines that the magazine covered. I was studying fine arts and um, graphics and communication. So I, I, I didn't do a writing thing. I designed a direct mail piece that would be something Mademoiselle could potentially send out to get subscribers. So it was a very colorful thing that folded out with lots of different things. And and next thing I knew, I got a call from uh, somebody at Mademoiselle saying that there was going to be an editor in my town um, next few weeks or so. Would I be able to meet with her and show around the campus? And of course, I was very excited and said yes. And I, I had no idea that that was the interview. That was where somebody came to meet the finalists that they were looking at. And um, I spent a day with this editor, took her to the cafeteria and all the hot places on campus. And next thing I knew, about a month or so later, I got, and this really dates me, I got a telegram, um, which are people today have no idea what a telegram is. Um, and that was in my mailbox at the campus. And I was screaming, oh, my God, I was selected to be one of the 20 guest editors. So... That was a very prestigious thing to become a guest editor. Um, people like Betsy Johnson were guest editors, Ali McGraw, Sylvia Plath. Um, quite a prestigious when you go back into the history of guest editors. And how did that lead to being there full time? And that was, we were 20 picked to come to New York for the month of um, June. So I missed my graduation because it was more important that I went to this. We stayed in the Barbizon Hotel for Women. New York was my home, so it wasn't a big deal for me. But for 19 others, it was, oh, my God, we're in New York. And we were winding. Cue the reality show. This right. is the reality yeah. show. In today's timing, it would be an, a, a fabulous New York apartment that they put 20 girls up in. You know, 
competing and killing each other for the yeah, for the date or the job. Had, you would have had three yeah. nemesis. Yeah, it would have been crazy. You know, and we went to parties and discos and uh, George Barkington's studio photography and, and met lots of advertisers to talk about their products and their things and, and then did a trip. And I was the only one of the 20 in my group that was then called back for a full-time job, which was terrific after my European summer. On the editorial side? Um, well, editorial merchandise on the promotion side. I Well, first I started in the college competitions where the, the group that organizes this contest, and so the next year I, I was traveling to college campuses myself, checking out people and promoting the magazine. It was a tough time because it was Vietnam War. You know, people are burning bras, and I'm coming there from a fashion magazine. A uh, little, little chancy. Um, but I stayed there and then moved into merchandising, so I had an experience that is invaluable to this day. I traveled to almost every state and did events in department stores. When department stores had names that reflected the community, the local locale, um, you know, Higby's and... Marshall Field and all the stores before they became Macy's. Right, right. And well, and it's interesting. So few people in the industry get out of New York and L.A. Yeah. Paris and yeah. London, and yeah. so there really you know, is a lot of consumers. There really in is an America in between all those places. Well, so and 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 I will pull out from you the chronology, but but I'd like to while we're on publishing, obviously a troubled segment of the industry financially. What do you think that means for the fashion industry? And commentary, educated commentary on on design, on product, on brand. Well, I think it's a loss for a lot of people um, because they really were authorities who had history and had knowledge and uh, context. They knew how to. They understood when they saw a collection why it worked and why it didn't because of X, Y, and Z ten years ago and twenty years ago and fifty years ago, and they would write about that. Um. You know, I'm old school. I like magazines. I like newspapers. I like holding it in my hand. I don't like going blind reading everything on a three-inch screen. But I don't think the publishing necessarily is over. It's just transformed transform to other devices and other ways of getting the information. Um, and I think this new generation is not getting all the information. They're getting sound bites. They're getting Instagram notices. They're getting... TikToks and whatever they, whatever's out there today. Yeah. Well, I'm always encouraged when I see the, you know, spend six more minutes to read this. I like the disclosure yeah. that it's going to be six more minutes, but I like knowing that I'm going to get, if not a deep dive, you know, not an Atlantic or a New Yorker article, but at least something more substantial than a tweet. Yeah. Um, okay. So back to you and back to, um, let's, let's flip to the CFDA where you and Stan Herman really... Uh, were running things, and, and you were the proponent of 7th on 6th, which became New York Fashion Week. Obviously, that at, at that juncture, you had the big four. This is 90s and, and early aughts, right? Um, and by that, I mean Tommy, Donna, Calvin, and of course, Ralph. Um, and not a tremendous amount of other brands. But through that process, I think, the ecosystem proliferated a bit, and there was an American voice that kind of came to the fore. And now we do have a bit of an ecosystem. Was that was that the goal of Seventh on Six as originally considered, or was that just an offshoot? No, that wasn't the goal at all. Uh, when we started Seventh on Sixth, which, for those who don't understand what that really means, it was Seventh Avenue, which is the generic name for the garment center in the fashion industry. Uh, moved right, right, the stones throw from where we're sitting, moved to Sixth Avenue, which is the, the street that Bryant Park was fronted on, uh, which we're also right next to uh, today. And what we were doing in creating Seventh uh, on Sixth was to find safe, sound home place for fashion shows to happen, to modernize, centralize, and organize. Uh, because there was an accident when I just was hired and selected to be the executive director of the CFDA. I joined them. I was hired in, at the end of March on my birthday, in fact, 
And I started two weeks later, and within those two weeks was the was a market week, fashion week. And Michael Kors had a show down in Chelsea in an empty loft space where designers love empty, lofty kind of spaces, raw back, concrete. Back when they used to exist, yeah. Exactly. None, there's no empty spaces anywhere now. Well, there's a lot of empty glass apartments. Empty glass storefronts, actually, in on the streets. So uh, Michael did a show in this empty concrete space. Uh, you turn the bass music on and things shake. Well, the ceiling started to shake and plaster started to crumble and come down on the runway on the shoulders of the one-name supermodels, Cindy, Linda, Naomi, Claudia. And, you know, people were aghast and plaster landed in the laps of the editors in the front row, namely Susie Mankus from the International Herald Tribune at the time and Carrie Donovan from the New York Times. And they wrote the next day that they live for fashion. They don't want to die for it. Nobody remembers what Michael showed that season. Everybody was looking for where the exits are. If God forbid more yeah, of the yeah. ceiling came down. And so I said, I think my job description just changed. And so it became a mission to find a place where the American designers, who were all the members of the CFDA, could do shows together. A concept that was happening already in Europe in Paris had had the Chambres and Decal organizing shows, the the Camera della Moda in Milan organized shows, <clears throat> and the British Fashion Council organized shows. But in America, the CFDA had not been doing that. And so we were the obvious body to take on that mission. And that became my job. And I started looking for empty spaces everywhere that could possibly, we could put up shows. And and I also spent a good part of my time dialing for dollars, sponsorships to raise money to do it. We were the first fashion week that was sponsored by corporations. I mean, in Europe, that, that nobody ever talked about, you know, Mercedes or right. General Motors or, you Well, know, and interesting because SD fashion or, has always been such a traditionally to associate your brand with fashion broadly considered is in most cases a very positive association. Yeah. So we were actually the first to do that, and we the first shows we got organized were in the Maclow Hotel, which was then the Maclow Hotel, which is now the Millennial Hotel on 44th Street, uh, and it was close to our garment center, you know, and it was an experiment to see if more than six designers would show in the same place because everybody's so particular about my environment has to be unique and it has to you know, represent my collection and, right. you know, and we're like, hey, stupid, just get it on the runway and make it easy for people to see it. Right. Um, and then with getting the funding and everything and working with the Bryant Park Restoration Corp and um, a little bit of support from the city, we got the first season of Fashion Week up in two tents in Bryant Park and the venue inside the library. So we had three different venues. We called them our three muses. It was Celeste who was in the library. Yep. Elizabeth was the tent on the Sixth Avenue side of the lawn, because right. that was the uh, the Elizabeth Shaw Lowell Fountain, mm -hmm. and the big tent was on the other side of the lawn, and that was Gertrude, because there was a Gertrude Stein statue right. that sits in the right. park, Still and there. she would always be backstage, and wow. designers would always dress her with pearls and hats and scarves, and she looks so sorrowful. Oh, that she's statue. very sorrowful. Yeah. <laughs> And then that was before the restaurant was up in Bryant Park, and you know, so it was a it was a heady time to put that all together. Um, well, it's obviously changed. Um, you know, the CFDA acquired really one of the only organizing components of Fashion Week here in the U.S., the Fashion Calendar, a few years back, um, and you know has has attempted to broaden Fashion Week to include a separate men's and women's, although I think there was a time when they were bifurcated for a short period of time. Um, maybe talk about those efforts and what you think the future of Fashion Weeks broadly considered is. Will they consolidate to, you know, many designers want to show in Paris and only Paris. Um, many people talk about New York Fashion Week not being relevant. What are your thoughts it's, on this? It's interesting, and it's a very disruptive time now for Fashion Weeks. Um, back when we started this, and uh, Fashion Week was in in Bryant Park, and it was there for almost 20 years. Yeah. 
uh, the first 10 under the auspices of the CFDA. But the CFDA sold Fashion Week to IMG. We sold the seventh on sixth business. Uh, and then I left CFDA and joined IMG. Uh, IMG had the wherewithal and the funding and the um, the opportunity to bring all sorts of other opportunities to the table. Well, full-time staffers who were dedicated to find sponsors. And and people who do events all over the world so they could, you know, negotiate for better prices, for putting things together, more opportunities for media, for outreach, you know, to, to leverage the sponsors' uh, investments. Uh, and we also then created Fashion Weeks under the IMG umbrella in Los Angeles, uh, in Miami. There was a swim week. We started Berlin Fashion Week. We acquired uh, Sydney and Australia and, and Melbourne in Australia. Acquired Fashion Weeks in Moscow. Uh, consulted on in Toronto and Mexico City. And then I was going to Dubai and to Japan and to Singapore and places where everybody wanted to have a Fashion Week. You know, get the IMG team because they they know how to produce Fashion Week. Right. And IMG is still to this day has the largest component of fashion shows during Fashion Week. For the last couple of seasons, they've been down at Spring Studios. Nobody knows where they're going to be next. Uh, We also did a men's week when I was at CFDA. And it was actually, we didn't do it in Bryant Park because we didn't have enough shows to do. So we did them up in the 50s and Sony Studios and other places. We've done them in lots of places. Then... Fast forward many years later, you know, I'm out, I'm at IMG, you know, and then I'm out of, I left there and started my own consulting business. CFDA started to want back into the fashion week production world. And so they, because there was a lot of pressure about men's being very hot and, um, you know, thanks to people like you and people who, you know, dress great and menswear was becoming very popular. And people were looking at, like, you know, we've got a lot of talent in this country. They shouldn't all have to go to Milan and to Paris to show. Right. And so, Or show on the women's calendar, which is a different calendar. calendar. Which, for some, was okay because it was more media, more publicity. Right. The, the open to buys maybe had been gone by then. Mm-hmm. But uh, it, it was more of a media opportunity. But those weeks, so at CFDA started to organize a, a, a men's week which I think they did a, a, a decent job of for a couple of seasons. It's, it seems to have stopped now. And now I just saw an email about registering for men's shows. So I, I'm not sure what's happening. Mm-hmm. I think there might be another men's week, or it's the men's shows that are going to be a couple of days to overlap with the women's at the beginning. It right. looks like that's, right. it's still dovetailed to women's shows again. Well, and as you know, full disclosure to everybody, I represent the CFTA, right. the firm does. Um, you know, in those discussions about about owning a fashion week or, you know, I, I think at times those can be a little overblown because I think IMG and the CFTA and anyone involved feels that we're creating a platform for the designers. But to the extent IMG can, can monetize that, that that is an asset for them, and there needs to be some level of coordination so Absolutely. it's not disharmony. Um, well, it became New York Fashion Week again instead of being Mercedes Benz right. Fashion Week, which right. is what IMG was producing for so many right. years. You know, the sponsors had the title sponsorship, and I think after a big, you know, consulting um, paper, you know, yeah. they pulled that back. Well, it's one of those things if they're not going to take a hundred year sponsorship. It gets a little confusing. Mm-hmm. It's Mercedes Benz. It's it's Amazon. It's you know whatever who, whoever that title sponsor is. Just like stadium sponsorships, right. which right. you know it gets confusing when uh, a stadium changes just its title. The stadium stayed the same, right. um, particularly for something where you know you're expecting 50, 80 brands to come and 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 come together. They may not feel that it's an appropriate affiliation with with a car company. You know, and, and I think that, uh, you know, in supporting brands, that's that's a brand's right to take that position. But, right, um, but growing, growing up through this process of creating Fashion Weeks, I mean, our objective when it started was to create safe, sound places and to make it affordable. I mean, it was really about amortizing the cost so that 
you know, it, if a designer did a show before that in the Pierre Hotel in the morning and set up the runway, the lights, the sound, the rigging, the chairs, the whole nine yards, fabulous show, great. Somebody's having a bar mitzvah there that night. Everything comes down. The next day somebody wants to show there again. They start all over again and pay all over again. So the thought of having a place where all that is in place, all the basics, including security, promotion, marketing, was quite brilliant. Yeah. You know, so designers could just come in with a collection and their PR team, you know, they could personalize the set if they wanted to or not and make it their own show. Yeah. So it was a great cost saving. Truthfully, today I have no idea what, what, you know, IMG or anybody else or Pier 59 is charging to do a show. Yeah. But that was what the real, the real deal was. Let's make this affordable for designers. You know, and so that's what IMG makes that investment, sells the sponsorships in order to amortize those costs. Um, CFDA has the calendar, as you referenced, bought that from Ruth Finley. Mm -hmm. And in full honesty, I don't think that that's functioning very well right now because the calendar used to have everybody listed on it. Right. Everybody who showed in New York, who they were, where a contact for a phone number or an email address um, and in most cases where the show was and how right. to reach out so that you could either get invited and call up and get a ticket or not. Now, none of that exists. Now you get the CFDA calendar and it has just who CFDA has on it. So you think it's it's in a way excluding those people that, that under Ruth's stewardship, it was inclusive and she might suggest well, you probably don't want to be at 3 o'clock because that's when Michael's showing, but if you demanded, she'd put it on the calendar and let the chips fall where they may, let the editors and buyers fall where they may, so exactly. to speak. Exactly. At the beginning, Ruth was very controlling and wouldn't put anybody, you know, double book somebody. Right. But then when Fashion Week became so popular, there were way more designers showing than hours in a given week. And there was inevitably overlapping. So we would work closely with Ruth to make sure that it wasn't two designers in a similar market with a similar editorial outreach or retail outreach. Mm -hmm. So you could have somebody doing funky streetwear the same time as somebody doing evening wear. So divided up the audience instead of having Jason Wu and Prabal showing at the same time. You know, so that's where that worked. But, but then... I think there were some even lawsuits at the time where people trying to sue them and said, nobody owns time. You can't own time slot. You know, it, it's just, you, it's time. So if 12 people wanted to show at that same time and they're paying to be on the calendar, you've got to list those 12 people. Yeah. You know, and like you say, it's up to us to navigate that nightmare. Right. Well, and one would think that editors and buyers who know the brands that they want to see are, you know, are going to make the choices right. that they're not going to be confused by some brand that they perhaps haven't heard of or is outside of their normal category. Well, flipping a little bit to the runway show and the presentation as, as perhaps a method that itself is, is transforming and brands are making a decision, a very conscious decision, not to throw a full runway show, maybe to throw a party that has an element of a runway show, like like the CFDA's new chairman, you know, in Los Angeles, and, and, and invite a select crew in and, and sort of promote it in different ways, non-traditional ways. Do you think that that, that is the future and we'll have this sort of diaspora of, of moments that brands create around fashion weeks, or... Is this a bit of a blip and there will be a, a reconsolidation? No, I think that that's very much where it's headed. I think people are trying to be more creative, trying to look at who their base is, who are they trying to reach, what are they trying to accomplish, what really is, I think it's time for everybody to figure that out. What is the purpose of the show? Who's in the audience? I mean, I go to some shows now and I look around and I go, who is here? I mean, granted, I don't know all the new youngest influencers in the front row, or, you know, they used to be bloggers, now they're influencers. Well, they change a lot. I think that's part of the problem. And But even retailers and, and, and editors for magazines, it's a, it's a changing landscape. 
Um, people get information in all different ways now, and everybody's looking for the Instagrammable moment. That seems to be the whole purpose of doing all this and spending hundreds of thousands of dollars is to get more Instagram posts from your show. Right. Um, so designers are cleverly, the, some smart ones are saying, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? Let's analyze this and look at it. Because it's a big financial commitment. And a lot of the industry prefers presentations because you could walk into a studio or a space. You could see the clothing statically on and you models. have a, a time period to show up as opposed to you've got to be there. You've got to be there and hurry up and sit there and wait for 25 minutes for the show to start. Um, you can walk in. You can meet the designer. You can get a quick sound bite, you know, without having to kill yourself to get backstage at the end of a show. Um, and you could see the clothes and walk around and, you know, you can still get you get your good pictures. Um, so presentations have become much more prevalent and I think desirable for some people. Um I don't know. I, I want to think that they're less expensive, but I'm not sure about that because you're still booking a lot of models. You're still booking the models, but the lighting and the sound and other elements aren't as important. I, I think maybe. So I, think I mean, I think just to from from my vantage point, where we do even tiny micro contracts for the people that are doing hair and makeup, I think it's it's a bit cheaper. Yeah. Maybe maybe thirty percent cheaper. Yeah. So that's a consideration. And I think other people are doing parties and receptions and, you know, dinners and club things. And, and I think that's what's exciting, actually. I mean, I think that diversity of the way people are showing. Um, last season, you know, one night, we were in Harlem at the Apollo for Tommy Hilfiger's show. But it was an event. It was a big event. You know, and then we're supposed to be... 10 minutes later in Brooklyn at the King's Theater for um, Kirby's um, show for Pyre Moss. Right. I mean, and that's an hour's drive to well, get there. Well, it started about an hour late because I, oh, was at that, I wasn't up late. in Harlem, but I was I was out in Brooklyn and it was gorgeous. And you were at back-to-back two amazing theaters it was inc- for sure. It was incredible. But that tension is, is obviously difficult. I mean, New York, when you consider the five boroughs, is a pretty big place. And there were more shows in Brooklyn this season than ever before. You know, and I don't mind shows in Brooklyn, but when they're in the middle of the day and you're supposed to be at a show at one o'clock and then your two o'clock shows in Brooklyn and your three o'clock shows back in the city, it's it's tough. You have to start making decisions and say, sorry, I can't go to this one or I'm going to miss that one. Um, but that's, you know, I that's been going on in Paris and Milan, you know, with shows that are outside the districts. And, right. you know, so New York's maybe catching up with all that that European craziness. Right, right. Well, let's pivot a little bit. Um, you know, we've talked about your background. Um, you know, given the time period that we're talking about and the connectivity that you had and, and how many rooms you had to be in, was it difficult being a woman in rooms full of, let's face it, white, older men who kind of ran the industry both fashion and publishing and you know on the sponsorship side you know in the early days that it was something I never thought about um you know it was just it was what it was but you know working at a fashion magazine uh for six seven years there were so many women there you know you never quite thought that all the really important decisions were done by a man how many were at the board meetings though who, who even knew who was on the <laughs> right. board? You know, we, we didn't have privy to that information. Um, you know, and then back in retail, when I, I was fashion director at Gimbel's East for a couple of years, you know, clearly there were men running the show that you thought they don't have a clue what the clothing is or what people are really wanting to wear and what have you. And, and I didn't think about it. I had a PR business for a long time, and so it wasn't an issue. Um, I think it became most obvious to me when I was at IMG, which, because that's a big boys club. Um, Huge global corporation. I mean, I had great respect for Mark McCormick, who started it when I, and was alive when I joined the company. But a lot of testosterone. Well, it was a sports-driven company. It was all, everything was built on the sports world. Um, on, On Mark's relationship with Arnold Palmer that started everything. Um, You know, it was, but, you know, one of the things, though, I have to say that 
when IMG bought Fashion Week, bought 7th and 6th from the CFDA, I was on a conference call on the phone with the New York Times writing an article about it. And it was Mark in Cleveland, and I was on the phone in New York. And I I think it would be with Kathy Horn, who was writing the article. And she said to him, why why Fashion Week? What it, I mean, what, how does this company like this come to Fashion Week? It's all about sports. And he said, like sport, fashion needs no language to be understood. Interesting. And I thought, wow, what a smart thing to say. And, yeah. and he was right. You could look at it, observe it, understand it. You don't need to translate it. You, you know, anybody anywhere in the world could look at it and know what's happening. Uh, so that was an interesting comment. But there were a lot of boys there. You know, I rose pretty much as high as I could at the time as senior vice president. I probably should have, you know, fought a little bit more to take on a little more authority. They had the modeling division, you know, and the fashion division did expand globally, worldwide. And, and a lot of that was based on my shoulders and what I brought to the table. Um, but I didn't fight that fight. And that's okay. You know, I moved on at the end of it. Well, um, the business itself... I mean, we've talked about shows and presentations and, and, and those changes. I mean, these have all largely been driven by the speed with which consumers get information, the Internet, right? And, and you and I have the, <laughs> the advantage of having sat on both sides of, you know, pre-Internet and post-Internet and this explosive growth in information and social media platforms and, and brands achieving um, recognition and eyeballs and, and therefore sales on the basis of that. Um, but that has changed the model for starting a business in a way, I think, that is potentially problematic to young designers insofar as in the traditional model, right, if you were good and you could fund that presentation, right. all you had to pay for were your samples and getting those butts and seats for that presentation. And if people bought, you'd be holding AR from companies, retailers that weren't about to go bankrupt <laughs> back in the day. And you could finance production on the basis of that and not have to go out and seek investors and become a national, even global brand really right out of the gates. Again, if you were good enough. Today, you need a built-out website, direct-to-consumer with fulfillment, and importantly, that ability to get eyeballs on your product, which, let's face it, if you're straight out of Parsons or, or you know any school, that's hard to achieve unless you are a celebrity. So the barriers to entry actually, I think, right now are higher, even though your nearness to the consumer has never been closer. Is that does that spark anything in you? I don't think we've ever talked about it. Do you do you think that that's true, or or do you have well, a contrary position? You know, I'm not sure. You know, I consult now in a lot of regional fashion weeks. I go to Nashville Fashion Week, Charleston Fashion Week, Philly, and you know, and I and Indianapolis that just started up a fashion week. Um, and there's one, you know, name a city they have a fashion week. Right. Um, and. I'll, Part of what I do when I'm there is talk to the designers. They all want encouragement and advice from me. And, and I always say, you don't have to be in New York to be a designer. You know, you with the Internet and with your iPhone, you could be a designer anywhere in, in the world. You know, you, talent is talent. That, that rises to the surface. But I think now because of the Internet, some younger underfunded Designers have a chance to create something without having to spend an enormous amount of money on show. I mean, it's a different scale of business. They're not looking to be global brands, but, but they want to be a designer and want to sell their clothes. They could create imagery and photograph their friends and people wearing their clothes. And, and if luck is the draw, you know, some, something catches on, becomes viral. Before you know it, they could be in business. Yeah. Um, there's a designer named, um, oh God, her name just went, went out of my head. I'll think of it in a minute in Nashville who never, um, Elizabeth, Elizabeth Suzanne, who never, when I first went down there at the first fashion week, um, I was really, you know, completely blown away by, um, by her, a friend, a, a blogger down there said, you have, she was wearing a great dress. And I said, where's it? She said, oh, you have to meet this gal. 
and took us to her studio. It was about double the size of this office. And she was making all this clothing, linen and pieces that were all mix and match. She now has, I don't even know how many thousands of square feet um, warehouse, has an enormous, unbelievable business. Never once did a show, never once did anything, all just from being online, Mm -hmm. creating a small online business that grew and grew and grew. And she is, she's remarkable. Um, So you can become that, you know, Mm -hmm. so she's not Tommy Hilfiger, but she's got an enormous business. Yeah. Very successful without playing by anybody else's rules. So there's a lot of ways to skin the cat these days. Well, and I think there has been this notion for decades that the goal is to become the next billion dollar brand. You know, we started with my reference to the big four, right? All of those companies were billion-plus companies. Yeah, look they at all Calvin went public. Klein now, and where's Calvin? Look at, you know, well, Donna. That's a, look at, exactly. You know. that's, that's, that's a good point. And, you know, maybe Michael was the last one through the gates to, to, to become a billion-dollar brand Tory, and go public. Tory Burch. Well, I think brands like Tory Burch and Rag and & Bone and other sort of ready-to-wear brands are now kind of in that challenged position of having not gone public, uh, being solid brands, but being a lot of things to a lot of people, which is tough right now. Luxury is currently doing well. Read, you know, very, very expensive heritage. And really cheap and affordable is doing very, very well. Read Zara, H&M. The middle is getting a little crushed. And I, I think it's a hard time for those brands because, you know, their doors are closing. Um, they're trying to pivot to a more direct-to-consumer model. They have the wherewithal to do it internally, but they're not native to it, and so they're at a disadvantage, right? They're kind of steering the big ship and trying to, I mean. No, it, it is. It's very, it's very tough, and, and, you know, I hate you keep using that word disruptive, but the industry is very disruptive right now, and people are trying to figure figure it out. I mean, I'm wearing Derek Lamb. He's one of those designers who's in that, kind of and i hate to say it that purgatory stage you know they're not huge brands they're not and they're not low low brands and they're all in that middle range where they are fabulous designers talented people have really paid their dues and whether it's an influx of more money from investors or you know it's like the where are they going to go? What's the next place up? Right, right. You know, with Barney's in question and uh, stores like that closing, um, Lord and Taylor closing, everything else closing. You know, there's less, fewer and fewer places at retail. And how do you build a big internet business, you know, e-commerce business? It's not easy. Well, and there are designers who, in a sense, have sort of torn it down and are starting again. Takoon comes to mind, uh, who recently relaunched. Uh, Peter Somm and others and um, but let's talk about what you're wearing uh, <laughs> <laughs> because um, you know part of part of this dialogue I think and it's 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 not these comments aren't trite and they're not you know but the way we present ourselves is is certainly important and what drives fashion um, and you have always been recognized as a as a very stylish person oh, with a distinct you. no but your perspective is always this kind of boho chic I mean you know it's it's funny to hear you talk about your past and the bra burning and the because there is a very seventies vibe, I think, in the way that you put yourself out there, but polished, you know. So it's kind of this I always consider Fern to be kind of my cool big sister. Oh, right? I think I'm the industry's cool big sister. But you know, how how do you approach personal presentation? Do you look at it as it's gonna be consistent? Do you, do you meander to different designers, and, and, and how do you look at it in relation to the industry and the designers who are in it? I, I meander, uh, absolutely. I'm, I spent a great deal of my early life in the industry wearing Missoni and Sonia Ricciel and even Versace way back when I became the director of the CFDA. Regrettably, I have to say, I gave away all my European clothes and said, I have to wear American designers. That's my right, job. Right. When I look back now at the things that I gave away, <laughs> I want to kill myself because I could have had my own vintage shop. Right, right. Know, and I didn't even save them for my nieces. Um, and, and I could picture 
clearly what everything looked like. I remember it all so well because it was all great stuff. Um, but then, you know, I started wearing a lot of, you know, Donna and, and a lot of Calvin and Michael Kors and, you know, all the people in Yoli and all the designers that, you know, in, in New York. And, and I still wear the American designers primarily. You know, European-wise, I'll wear one of my favorites would be Dries Van Noten, which is that boho, chic, fabulous yep. kind of look. I wear a lot of Lafayette 148. I love the Lafayette team. I think what they're doing now is spectacular and, you know, and it fits me because I'm no longer the size as I used to be, you know, and I'm still one of those people who have a closet full of every range of clothing and, and I'm having to Marie Kondo my life and I just need to make time to get rid of stuff. I, like everybody else, I have way too many things in my closets and, and it's the hardest thing to let go of because you know, one of the things I did in my career when I left Fashion Week and IMG and everything, I did a month stint um, off Broadway in a play called Love Loss and What I Wore, wow. which was written by Nora and Delia Ephraim. And it was based on a book by um, Ginger, Gingy, um, uh, oh God, I can't remember her name now, but it's the cutest little book of, of clothing. And it's each page is a sketch of an outfit with a little story about it. And the play, the Ephraims bought it from her and Gingy Beckham, Beckerman, Beckerman, and she, they created stories about each thing. So each story, each uh, garment I have has a story. I mean, every single thing in my closet, I could tell you why, when, what, why I bought it, where I bought it, you know, what it meant to me. And so it's so hard to part with these things. And I have a lot of Indian clothes, a lot of clothes from India. I spent 10 years working on Fashion Week in Mumbai and so became friends with all the designers in India. And I love that sensibility. I love the well, colors. Well, the quality is so high. I mean, people don't realize how much is actually made in India and Pakistan. And so when you actually go there directly and you're buying directly, the quality is just so Well, and it's stuff you don't see everywhere here, you know. And every time I wear something, people go, where'd you get that? Where's that? Not available here. You know, and I love that. I love the proportion of the Indian clothes and the, the, the color and the embellishments. And um, so my wardrobe is too much of everything, and I really need to get rid of it. You accessorize a lot as well, which is a great, you know, uh, what you wear is, is rarely truly basic, you know, sort of like a monochrome black look, but I've seen you in that from time to time. But you always have lots a number of, of bracelets on and lots of jewelry. Is that just your jam? Like, what? What's what that's, is it about that's that? That's definitely the more is better, you know, than the less is more philosophy. I, if I showed you the wall in my bedroom of my jewelry hanging up, right. we created a system with my architect of these these kind of rods that are about three, four inches, like, um, you know, like. Because well, that's hangers. the hardest thing is to and really whole, see it. The whole grid of each them. morning. Oh, yeah, it used yeah. to be impossible. Um, so everything's hanging there. It looks like a boutique. Yeah. Um, but I've, I, there was a makeup artist a thousand years ago when I worked at Mademoiselle who used to call me Tina Trinket because I always had so many necklaces on. And I've always loved accessorizing. And to that point, I also had a collection called Fern Finds with HSN and QVC that was based on my Indian jewelry primarily that we would make and sell on, on, on the air. Um, and I love that. And I still lo love, I, I mean, that's, that's what I think tells a story about who you are. You know, you have to. Well, we have seen a few brands either pivot to or, or form as unisex brands, putting themselves out there as we're not women's wear, we're not men's wear, this is a unisex line. And, and some of those areas, I had Yoli Tang on who talked about, well, you know, where I grew up, it's all unisex. It's a sarong, you know, so there's nothing weird about that. And I'm not suggesting there's anything weird. More talking about in terms of the U.S. customer. Do you see that as having some lasting power or is that kind of a fad based on gender fluidity being very much in the conversation, the news cycle these days? I think that's only going to get bigger and more important. And I think it's, I think it makes so much sense. I mean, there's not a girl I know or a woman I know that doesn't like wearing a man's shirt. You know, 
looser and a little bit bigger and um, that kind of proportion of things. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, many times I'll go to the men's department to find something that fits me better. The sweater's a little looser or right. something. Not necessarily the pants, but, you know, the tops yeah. and things. Yeah. Um, friends of mine opened a business called The Salting, and it's all about unisex clothing. It, linen kind of caftans and dresses and great big shirts. Um, I think it's very much where the future's going. And, you know, then there are, God knows, the, you know, the Jordan Roths and Billy Porters of the world who right. are, you know, Considered the most the fashionable, yeah, breaking the internet. I mean, I'm interviewing Billy at the Y in December, and I can't wait for that. I, I'm all trying to figure out what I think he's going to wear. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, who knows? Yeah, who knows? He probably he probably doesn't know until and, and, you know, day of. Why not? Um, well, another big topic in the industry, um, and brands are all espousing it. Some have been espousing it for, you know, since formation, like Stella McCartney, Eileen Fisher. Others are, are somewhat new to it, but sustainability. And by that, because that term is is somewhat meaningless, can be applied to a lot of different components of a business, but environmental sustainability and and what many view as an environmental crisis uh, that the fashion industry is largely contributing to. Um, Hearing numbers like 60-70% of all newly produced items wind up in the planet. Um, What do you think about how brands are approaching this? Uh, the industry as a whole is approaching it, and um, what can we do better? I think we can do everything better in that area, and I think we have to. It's not even a question. Um, clearly, for me, sustainability is the new black, and I think it's the most important topic uh, that we can address and that the industry has to address. Um, it's, it's scary when you see the weather patterns that are happening out there, and you know, I'm terrified of what this winter is going to bring. And the amount of floods, the fires in California are horrifying. Um, all of that is relatable to the environment. And all of that, it, it's, all, it's all connected. You know, we're doing a terrible job in this country of, of really putting in the laws and the, and the kinds of things that will stop this from happening. Yeah. I mean, and we're close to the point of no return time and yes the fashion industry is a big part of that um, I went to one of uh, a discussion last season that was IMG hosted about sustainability and I do agree with you about the the definition of that um, well actually before I went to this IMG panel I was in Copenhagen at the summit okay. in, in uh, the spring uh, and I was at the first one that they did 10 years ago and this was the 10th anniversary and Vanessa Friedman, in her talk there, an interview with a few people, the one thing she said at the beginning, and I so har- wholeheartedly agree with her, is somebody needs to do the definitive dictionary of sustainability. So there's a language that everybody agrees on. What sustainable means, what you know, organic means, what and natural And a lawyer means. needs to be at that table drafting. A lawyer needs to be at that table um, I think you should raise your hand and make it happen. Um, what it means, to, what circular means, what, uh, you know, organic, whatever. I mean, everybody's talking the because talk. Because it's, it's also about consumer protection and greenwashing, right? Well, and to talk about washing, I mean, I when I went to the IMG panel, I said at the end of three experts talking about this, including Dana Thomas moderating, who did a fabulous book that anybody interested in, the, in this issue of sustainability should read it's called fashionopolis and it's easily readable for laymen and it's so informative um but i said okay you've all given us so much information if we walk out of here now what's the one thing we can all do to make a difference one thing that we could start with and she said wash your clothes less don't wash so much don't use your washing machines as much as you do and absolutely always use cold water and do it cold, dry if you can. If you can. Mm-hmm. Um, and she said, and this advice was actually coming from Procter & Gamble, who is Makes selling washing machines, washing <laughs> machines and selling you know, detergent. And because we use so much water in washing um, machines that we don't need to wash so often. And 
any and when you dry things in hot water in hot air and and it releases molecules in the in the materials and fibers that are in, go into the environment and those those are dangerous i mean so it's that's one thing to do i mean but every you know i feel like with sustainability it's almost like like when people were doing clothing for breast cancer hi you know they put a tag on it percentage of this goes to breast cancer you know how do you know that does anybody tracking that my purchase that you know eight dollars of that is going it is to regulated state by state it's called cause marketing so it is a regulated area that doesn't mean there are cops out running around actually tracking yeah. it but um, you know now people are saying you know sustainable or ecological or you know this fiber well and this is the more troubling area because it is not regulated by specific governmental bodies. I mean, you have the state of California trying to do things independently. You obviously have Trump fighting that because, you know, once one state takes a stand with the internet, you're selling into all states. California is a huge market and, you know, it, it, it then dictates kind of what, what national law is. But, um, you're, you're absolutely right back to the agreed language. There is no agreed language. And so, as after the Rana Plaza tragedy in, in Bangladesh, there were large bodies of, of both retailers and brands getting together saying, we need to take action and, and you know, put a stop to this. And they formed various coalitions, all of which had very fancy titles, different, different constitutions that would govern them. No real follow through on whether or not what they were aspiring to have factory standards be were actually implemented. And candidly, the government saying, well, look, this is a sovereign nation and <laughs> we really appreciate your input, but it's also important for us to, to have jobs and we can, we can govern ourselves. So a lot of pushback from, from that standpoint as well. It's a, it's a very complicated global issue which I think disclosure is, is going to be key for, and disclosure is only based on an agreed language. Right. I mean, I was just saying last night at this dinner that I was at, imagine if Al Gore, who legitimately won the election when he was running for president, you know, and the Supreme Court reversed that, thank you, Mr. Bush. But um, if he were president, how different I think the climate would be that we're in now. You know, because he was such Literally, an environmentalist. Yeah. You know, there would have been emission standards and changes. There would have been windmills in places, you know, even though Donald Trump goes, who wants to see a windmill somewhere? You know, things creating um, alternate uses of ener ways to produce energy and, and electricity and everything. I mean, we are so behind the eight ball on that. You know, and going to Copenhagen, you see the way things are done in, in these other countries. And... Uh, so effortlessly and integrated into their their policies and into yeah. their lifestyles. Just their and, thought process. Um, it, it's we're so behind the eight ball, and it it scares me. I'm not going to be around long enough to really see the big changes, um, but I know it has to happen. And I, you know, I'll share with you a very scary thought that I keep thinking about is you know the the denim. Denim is the one of the bigger users of water yeah, and a big driver and in American fashion. Horrible, bad environmental product. Um, and the dyes to make denim, the indigo, are some of the most toxic dyes in the world. And, you know, and I keep more and more people getting organic dyes, whatever, you know, that means the natural dyes. But I keep thinking, and I don't. I don't tell me, Mr. Lawyer, can I be sued for my thoughts here? You know, I'm not libeling anybody, but I believe that there's so much cancer in our society that I think we have generations of students, not so people growing up wearing denim, from babies to adults to whatever, every single day, and at a certain point in life, tight, tight, tight on your body. Your skin is your largest organ in your body. And I have to believe there's some toxicities from these dyes that are seeping into people's bodies that are causing all of these uh, cancers that nobody can figure out why so many yeah. people are sick. Well, if there becomes a study that, that points to that, trust me, there will be it. a plaintiff's lawyer that will try to arrange a class action because I think you know there are plenty of people wearing denim. Um, you know, one of the other solves to this, but it unfortunately involves a lot of the brands that we love not necessarily making new stuff. Um, it's just reselling what's there. 
reselling, recycling, reusing, cutting it up and remaking it. I mean, it, that's that's an exciting thing when you see people doing that in a clever way. Um, you know, and and the rental business is going through the roof now, Absolutely. and that's a part of this. Like, stop buying things, rent it, and send it back. Um, I mean, there are, there are things that are happening that are exciting and positive, but I, I you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I met a young gal just coming out of Swarthmore last week who's so passionate about this whole issue of sustainability. And, you know, I'm trying to hook her up to get a job someplace yeah. because we need this generation who really is committed to that to really yeah. make the difference. Well, I don't want to end on a bad note. So you and I sit on the FIT board, and, you know, you're speaking of one student. You have always given a lot back. Um, you know, in FIT, you give back. Discuss your mentorship, what it means to you, um, and, and particularly in light of some of these problems that the industry has created or is now facing, um, and, and what you see in these future generations. Well, you know, like having seen this young girl the other day and seeing what some of the projects that the students at FIT are doing, you know, and talking about sustainability, it's mind-boggling. I mean, students who went into school to study fashion look like they're chemists. I mean, they're in labs with this amount of water, this amount of this, this amount of this product. Mushrooms and, and bacteria. Mushrooms and bacteria and algae and, you know, and, and you go, wow, wow. I mean, it just blows your mind. So I'm excited to see that i mean it's there's definitely interesting exciting things happening and and the students out there are doing great are, are doing important work the work that needs to be done and i'm very optimistic about that and and that's what my mentoring is kind of about you know i, I get stopped on the street all the time by somebody who says oh my god i went to this thing that you talked about and you were so helpful and you gave me encouragement and you know and it's just about being nice, one of my mantras in business, and giving people a little encouragement and, and endorsement. And, you know, and the, the planet's going to be around for a while. I'm, I'm, I'm not, I don't want to end negatively either. I think that there's some very exciting things out there. The fashion industry is full of the most creative thinkers, and, and that's why I love being in this industry. You never know from one day to the next who's going to do what and what's going to happen and you know who's going to just blow your mind and do something yeah. fabulous and and um you know I I'm opti I'm trying I'm as optimistic as I could be okay well I will force you to at least mention not in a plug way but your series at the 92nd Street Y and your book because this is certainly not the only platform that you can get the words of wisdom from Fern Malice. So what do you do up at the Y and you know who have you had on some huge huge um, industry players? Um, thank you. I I mean I'm very very proud of my series called Fashion Icons with Fern Malice at 92Y. It's going in its ninth year. I started just when I left. You're normally on this fashion. side of the table. I'm right? normally yeah. on the other side. Exactly. And uh, it just came out of nowhere it was nothing I ever thought about doing or planned to do it wasn't on my list like okay well I, I'm going to do an interview series uh, and for me in life all those things in my career have been organic and just evolved you know let the universe deliver be open to it and you never know where it's going to take it's you back to the hippie in you I, I guess <laughs> I guess um and so this series started um like I said like nine years ago the very first one person I interviewed was Norma Kamali and then it was Calvin Klein and then Donna Karen and Tommy and Mark Jacobs and Michael Kors and Tom Ford and Andre Leon Talley, Diane, Vera Wang, Betsy, um, Kenneth, Bill Cunningham, Oscar de la Renta, uh, you know, and many of those made the first book, the book called Fashion Lives that Rizzoli published and it's available on Amazon very reasonably priced. Oh, and oh, I actually meant to bring that to you today. I, I'll I'll, oh, I'll, I'll get it at the next board I meeting. Actually, <laughs> meant to do that. Um, and the book is full of the transcripts of our talks, and edited beautifully, so you they're really very easy to read, and supplemented with pictures, which are the shoebox under the bed. You know, I want to see what you look like as a baby. I want to see your parents. What right. did your house look like? Right. And the interviews are really who are you. 
how did you become you? You know, people who didn't grow up with a silver spoon in their mouth weren't weren't asked to take over daddy's big business. Right. How do you build from an idea and a creative vein in your body a million-dollar, billion-dollar business? Where did you get the money? How much did you need to start? How many Where'd people you did guts? you get the guts? The guts. And strength. And, and then you got your first order. Who did you call? You know, so you walk out of there and you feel like you've really learned something from these people. When Mark Jacobs was on the stage, I said to the audience, did you hear what he just said? It's the third time they went bankrupt. You know, but they kicked it back and they continue. And 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 you'll appreciate it. I said, and you still work with the same lawyer? And they said, yep, <laughs> we still do. Um, which I thought was, was fun. But then since the book came out, I've interviewed Valentino and Victoria Beckham and uh, Margarita and Rosita Missoni, <clears throat> Iman and Cindy Crawford and Bob Mackey and Ralph Rucci and um, Stan Herman and Alex Wang, Zach Posen, Tim Gunn. And, and uh, Billy is coming up, uh, right? Um, yeah, just, and Billy's coming up, and Zandra Rhodes is coming up next uh, November 12th. Almost 90 years old, British designer, the first one with bright pink hair and still has bright pink hair. And she's still working, and just you know, a couple of seasons ago did all the textiles for the Valentino collection, her beautiful textile work. Um, I'm, you can get tickets for that if you're listening to this, if it comes out in time. Um, and then Billy Porter, and we're booking for 2020 season. And um, I'm, the series is, is, it truly is fun, and it's great, and it's informative, and I'm, I'm very happy to be doing it. Exciting. Well, that's a wrap. Thanks for your time, Fern. Thank and you. I'll see you soon. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. You've been listening to The Laws of Style with Douglas Hand. For more information, go to our website at www.hballp.com. And you can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at, at Hand of the Law. Thank you for tuning in and stay stylish.